pain is a high correlating effect to being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think you've probably interviewed enough entrepreneurs to know that it is very much intertwined. It is a lonely journey. It is a very high pressure environment. Welcome to Super Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Shahid Durrani. Today we have with us Scott Amix. Scott is the managing partner at Astor Perkins, TEDx top global innovation keynote speaker, Forbes Singularity University Smart City Accelerator, SXS Pitch Accelerator, IBM Futurist, Tribeca Distributor Foundation Fellow. National Sloan Fellow, Willie Author, TechCrunch. Welcome to our show, my friend. Nice to be here. Thank you, Shahid, for the invitation. It's my pleasure. So your realm is innovation. Is there a product that you launched yourself in the past? Yeah, so I can give you a little bit of background just for your sure. listeners, uh, just to give us a little bit of context. So I would say for most of my life, I've always been an outside thinker, and I've had a great imagination, uh, to say the least. When I went to school, I went to the University of Chicago with the intention of attaining my PhD in economics. Now, during that time, I was actually working at the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago and realized that the public sector was just too stifling for my creative and innovative mind. Now, I have to say, that timing when I was in school, grad school, I was probably five to 10 years too young to capitalize on the dot-com. But when I did come out of school, I was eventually a pioneer in the fintech movement, very early movement that was fo focused on automated advice back in 2008. So again, very early. In my position, I drove that startup sales by 10x and was eventually acquired by a Fortune 500 company called Pfizer. Now, getting to your question is that in as part of that acquisition, I was positioned as a general manager, the GM for that business unit by the CEO, but I decided to start my own fintech startup. Now, mm. after two and a half years or so, I failed. And I think looking back, I think it's because I had the wrong target segment. A few years later, in 2013, I started to write on Wire magazine on topics of AI, decentralized internet, and the Internet of Things. And from 2014 to 2018, I was one of the leading influential figures on the Internet of Things and decentralized internets and what would eventually become Web3, including blockchain. Now, to the early introduction that you provided, for the past several years at Astor Perkins, which is a deep tech venture capital firm out of New York, I've shifted my focus to all things deep tech. If you look at my life, I would say it's not so much about me being associated with a specific technology, but it's my ability and specialty and expertise to be able to visualize in ways that probably maybe more crystal clear than for others, 
that future that's about that five to 10 year future window. And that's really what I do best, I think. And that's brought us to focusing on investment areas such as clean energy, including nuclear fusion, green hydrogen, carbon capture and sequestration. We're also very big into industrial and manufacturing robotics and advanced mm -hmm. AI, the space economy, and longevity within life sciences. Interesting. That's definitely a powerhouse right there. How is AI going to be involved in our lives in the next five to 10 years? For this conversation, I don't want it to be too just strictly focused on technology, but I will answer you. But I want to make sure that the bulk of the conversation is something that people can all relate to, which is about transformation. In terms of your question around AI, it's going to be very pervasive. So whether you look at the Gardner report, whether you get look at the McKinsey report, especially within machine learning, and then of course, everyone is talking about generative AI or large language model, we're starting to see a pretty pervasive and ubiquitous adoption or certainly experimentation. Now it's not seamless. It actually has its challenges and it also can be very expensive given the fact that OpenAI, for example, has reported some significant sales in the billions. So it can be very costly and it can also have a huge cloud cost aspect as well because of the fact that large language, large language model is heavily compute intensive. So it's a brute force type of an approach. Now, with that said, most of us, the mainstream, are going to be interfacing with AI in ways that we're already doing it but it's just going to get supercharged. And for the most part, it's going to be somewhat under the hood. We're not going to necessarily explicitly know that unless, of course, you're interacting with AI avatars. And there are certainly many apps where people are doing that. But I think mm. the biggest thrust of innovation that's happening is bringing these AI capabilities and infusing it with things in the cloud for enterprise purposes, whether it's in sales, whether it's in marketing, whether it's in content generation, and then getting into different functional mm. and silos from mathematics, from biotech, medical, to even legal aspects as far as like content, for example. But again, we're at a point where it's not just natural language processing, but it's multimodal. We're looking across video, audio, all sorts of different kind of multimedia formats and different types of metadata. So it's a very exciting time. But I would say with caution that there is lots of great opportunities, but it's also in a somewhat of an asset bubble. So we have to be thoughtful as an investor in terms of how to invest and when to invest, but also when to get out before that mm. implosion. Mm. In the realm of breakthrough innovations, can you share some of the challenges that you faced? Yeah, so I'm going to actually pivot to your question a little bit, because again, I want to make sure that this discussion, and just so you know, I don't typically agree to being interviewed. I hold my own set of podcasts on innovation and climate change, but I'm rarely actually giving permission to be interviewed. Uh, and that has its own set of reasoning. But I want to talk about first the top. You can yeah. answer in any way you like, but Absolutely. I have a Absolutely. very organic show, so I don't go based on any requirements per se but we're just going to have a conversation and see how we can add value. If you would like to answer in your specific way, please go ahead. You're my guest. 
So again, I want to talk about pain. And again, when people think about the term pain, they grimace and they think, oh, I don't want that. Something that we naturally want to fly, flee from. But when I look at my life, I, I think pain is critical to growth, transformation, and innovation. And, and let me give you a few examples. In my 20s, I developed this herniated disc in my neck because I worked nonstop from 10 to 12 hours in front of a computer without even taking a bathroom break or lunch or any kind of break whatsoever. And that forced me to change. I've had to see lots of different specialists, but it forced me to walk differently. Prior to that, I was actually hunched over and walking like a camel. Forced me to stand up tall and walk differently. I've also had to exercise daily because I didn't want to go through surgery. So in order for me to keep my pain down, the only way I could do that was if I exercise and exercise rigorously enough, almost daily. Now, I've always also struggled with sleep, and it's something that most entrepreneurs would understand given the gravity of the weight that they typically carry on a daily basis. And I tell you, as I got into my late 40s, my chronic sleep just became so bad that I, I remember emailing my doctor in the middle of the night, I think it was three in the morning, begging her for help. And of course, like most modern medicine and doctors, she said, You'll be all right. That week, I had not slept for several days continuously. And what I realized months and eventually years later was that I was undiagnosed with diabetes and I was probably suffering and living with chronic diabetes for decades without even knowing it. I still remember traveling internationally and it didn't matter if I was in business class, first class, lying flat. I just couldn't sleep at night. And I just thought that, well, it's because I don't sleep well on planes, but that's not the case. It's because my blood glucose level in my blood was just, was high, but it wasn't high enough from a medical diagnosis perspective to officially call it diabetes. So I was untreated. Now, this pain, this chronic lack of sleep, which I still suffer with, forced me to have to change doctors. And this happened during COVID. And I was always into kind of quantifying myself, but I became very advanced in terms of biometrics, in terms of things that I put on and measured. And over that, that journey in the past several years, I started to live a very disciplined life. Now, keep in mind, for most of my life, I've always been very disciplined. And this is part of the reason why I'm very goal-oriented but I became incredibly disciplined to the point where I start each morning with rigorous resistance training in the gym for about an hour to an hour and a half in a fastest state. And fastest state basically means I have an in for probably 12 to 18 and sometimes 20 hours. But then I go hard at the gym and that's super critical because the reason I do that is when you're doing that in a faster state, you're basically sucking the, the glucose out of your bloodstream and putting into your muscles, which is hugely important. And, and certainly for those that are looking to lose weight, working out in a faster state is absolutely incredible in terms of what it does for your weight loss as well. 
Now, I'll, I'll share this portion and I'll pause to see if you have any questions. But I've had to be very meticulous with the kinds of foods that I eat and when I eat, how much I eat. And I have a literally a document that details out the kinds of food that I can eat from lean protein like egg whites, beans, legumes, chicken, fish, to cruciferous vegetables and vegetables high in chlorophyll. Uh, I make my own fermented vegetables and kimchi, sweet potatoes, beets, garlic. I have a vegetable garden that's just winding down for the season, but okra. So we've had a lot of okra, for instance. Mm -hmm. Blueberries, grapefruits, avocado, walnuts, macadamia nuts, and even spices. So I actually formulate a what I call a vegan meal that includes salon cinnamon, turmeric, cumin, um, and then different kinds of supplements, as well as even special types of high antioxidant vinegars that are based on grape, strawberry, dark chocolate, and apple cider, for example. And all of this is really to help specifically target my insulin sensitivity, as well as my glucose management. Now, what's the result of all this? Because it's a lot of work. And I'll just be very frank. Most people will not be able to actually do this, let alone make it into a lifestyle that's permanent. At the age of 50, I am now at 10% body fat. And I look, if I actually slept more, I think I would look probably 20 years younger than my actual age. But the point of what I'm trying to say is that pain is a critical prerequisite to innovation and self-transformation and metamorphosis. When I go back and I think about <clears throat> my greatest achievements or times of change, it's when pain was so great, it has to be significant, it has to be chronic enough to force you to take drastic changes and measures. Unless it's painful, you're just not going to do it. One of the things I want to challenge your listeners is, as you think about your life, there are some things that gives you discomfort, but there are some clear things in your life, whether it's relational, whether it's health, whether it's career, where it has significant pain. And you have to ask yourself, and I wrote a book about this called Strive, How Doing the Things Most Uncomfortable Leads to Success, how pain is a necessary requirement for your greatest growth and development, and that you can actually come out much better than when you started. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to pause here to see what kind of questions so, you have. So Scott, I'm, first of all, I'm, I'm sorry to hear of, of your health journey. And definitely you took the positive out of that and got results from it. But being an entrepreneur show, not a health show, how could this be replicated in an entrepreneur's life if they could utilize pain to... Pain is a high correlating effect to being an entrepreneur. Uh, I think you've probably interviewed enough entrepreneurs to know that it is very much intertwined. It is a lonely journey. It is, it is a very high pressure environment. Uh, recently, the CEO and the founder of NVIDIA talked about how if he was given the chance to go back into his 30s, will he actually start NVIDIA again? And keep in mind, NVIDIA is our star performer in the past several years, especially with the recent generative AI momentum. But he said, listen, 
having gone through those decades of challenges, those ups and downs, those headaches, those embarrassments even, he said, there is no way that I would go back to start NVIDIA again. Now, keep in mind, he is a billionaire. He's done very well for himself. But for him to say that says a lot. So pain is a fundamental building block and a constant factor in entrepreneurship. So I just want to be clear when you say bifurcating this from a health and, and entrepreneurship, I think that's probably the wrong way to look at it some, from, from my point of view, but rather understanding the role of pain and how that actually helps drive, motivate, mm -hmm. but also transform yes. you so that you become more successful. You're speaking my language because that falls under the realm of getting out of your comfort zone, a little bit more extreme, obviously, but the whole purpose of entrepreneurship is to go through pain of failure and those kind of you know, triumphs that we have to go through. But my question was that the kind of pain that you had, unfortunately, to create the innovations and, and the creativity that you gained from that pain, because pain is a major component of entrepreneurship, but that was like a very unique type of pain. How can one of our listeners listening to this or watching this recreate that in their life? I, I tell you, one of the key secrets to entrepreneurship or any type of venture, whether it's intra within a company or outside, is dealing with pain, but pain can be synonymous with other things. For example, one of the core things that people don't recognize, but I remember speaking with uh, one of the chief innovation officers at a Fortune 500 company, and he said, I intentionally give my teams less budget than what they asked for. Why do you think he did that? And keep in mind, he oversees Comf innovation buckets that focuses on everything from quantum computing, new forms of AI and machine learning, to things like the space economy, just like what we're doing. But the mm. reason he gives people, his teams, less budget is because there's plenty of research that shows when we have scarcity, we tend to mm -hmm. have more creativity, more innovation than if we have ample funding. In the recent year and a half or so, since the macroeconomics have turned, over 500 or more startups have failed, according to Carta. Many of those were part of just being caught up in the wave. But some of those, especially the unicorns that were valued in the billions of dollars, the reality is they were so excessively funded that they excessively enjoyed and had a high burn rate. And without the notion of scarcity, they couldn't pivot in this kind of a stagflation, slow growth, recessionary environment. A good example is a large edtech company out of Australia and Europe, where they were a huge billion-dollar unicorn in that region where, frankly, it, there was, it didn't exist. But they party like tomorrow would never come. And they had this massive fest where drinking fest, party fest, and then after they exhausted all that cash, 
within weeks, they started to lay off people. So scarcity and pain are so critical, but what you do determines your trajectory, your success, your results. Mm. Like the underdog type of situation. You hear the stories, right? I don't know if it's a necessarily an underdog per se, but it's this notion that you have to think outside of the box. And when you have less resources, you have to be creative because you have to augment or supplement what you would have had with typical manpower or dollar resources or something else. The other thing that I talk about innovation, and I wrote about this on force.com, is that there's research that plainly shows that when we think about innovation, the problem is many of us were experts in our own functional and industry and our vertical space. But that also becomes somewhat of a challenge, a handicap, if I may say so, because what we're so knee deep in our knowledge of our space, let's say longevity, let's say you're an expert in metformin or different types of cocktails that can help increase your longevity, let's say. Although it's a very contested field with lots of experimentation happening, including IPSC, regenerative cells, and so forth. But let's say you're a deep expert. You're naturally going to rely on your subject matter expertise and your domain to figure out how to marginally innovate. So that results in average outcomes or marginal incremental outcomes. If you want real outsized innovation, research plainly says you have to look to distant domains. What that means is, sticking with, let's say, longevity, for example, it's very easy to just stay within that field, but you want to look at distant domains, fields that maybe have nothing to do with it, maybe forestry, let's say, maybe maybe things about marine biology, maybe space. When we look to those distant domains, we see inspirations, we see things that gives us aha moments. For example, Early this year, I had a chance to go to Australia and speak at a conference I was sponsored by, partially by University of Adelaide. And the topic was agriculture in space. That's a perfect example where we have some serious chronic climate change affected agricultural issues on Earth. But by looking to space and how we can grow food in space, it starts to give us inspiration and new perspectives that, frankly, we may not have looked at. So, for example, in space, you have very different factors. You have microgravity issues. Things grow differently. Even the molecular level is different. You don't have necessarily the source of solar rays. You have harsh conditions of radiation. You have a lot of different factors. And the fact that you're working in a very tight space and you have finite resources. So you have to work in a generally a closed environment, like an aquaculture and other types of environments that's fairly closed because you don't have access to soil, for example, and sun rays and lots of water. But yet you're still able to have significant outputs or produce or yield. And those kinds of insight, those kinds of research is being brought down back to earth and being promulgated so that we can actually have more resilient crop resilient agriculture, in addition to looking at new options like indoor vertical farming, for example. Great points, Scott. Appreciate your time today for coming on our show. It was a great discussion. 
definitely I feel bad for what you have went through. And it definitely is going to help because it's bringing out creativity and intelligence in your world via that pain. Keep going. I wish you a long, healthy life. Continue this mission. And um, thank you for coming on our show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. 